The Big Light presents Hello, I'm Sean McDonald. You're listening to Blethered, and my guest is singer-songwriter David Snedden. We talk about winning Fame Academy and being catapulted to overnight fame throughout the UK and going on to support Elton John on tour. The downsides of fame and why he very quickly turned his back on the concept of celebrity. And you'll hear David reflecting his prolific songwriting career so far, writing hits for people like Lewis Capaldi, Hertz, Lana Del Rey, The Cortinas, Rag and Bone Man, Nicole Scherzinger, Holly Murs, and the list goes on and on and on. And as always, there's plenty more. This episode is brought to you by debt experts don't fret about debt. If you're struggling with debt and you would like a free chat with an impartial advisor to discuss your options or to see how you can lower your monthly payments towards debt, then visit don'tfretaboutdebt.net forward slash leveled. You can also listen to my episodes with Don't Fret About Debt Senior Debt Advisor, Tommy Gallagher, where we discuss taking back control of your debt and the various solutions available. Don't fret about debt, offer all statutory debt solutions in Scotland, helping you to make an informed choice. So take the first step to dealing with your debt today. Free advice is also available from the Money Advice Service. As always, if you enjoy this episode, feel free to share it because it's a great help. Cheers. Right, so I've just called Vladimir Putin a fat wee dick, so... I'm going to keep that part of the conversation out because I don't want, he, he might listen and I don't, I mean, he's, I think he does. he's, he's already in a confrontational mood. So, so we'll leave, we'll leave out. David, thanks very much for taking the time this morning to come and chat to me. No problem at all, pal. I actually, it's funny, um, like I don't, I don't do interviews to be honest. I think I've done one in about 20 years. Um, Mate, Lord, I, Lickin, Lord Lickin's been seen more than you in the last 20 years. <laughs> I know where he is. Um, my uh, so so my, you did a podcast with one of my pals uh, with Dan Dan Dare. Um, right, yes, I wanted to talk about that, mate. What a guy Dan is! Right, that's that's so funny. I mean, he's a he's a legend um, and just an absolute one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Considering what his background is, like he's he's such a legend. But I was yeah. So when when um, I'd heard that one before, um, so when you approached me, I was like, fuck it, why not? Excellent. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> Delighted to hear that. For anybody who hasn't heard, so Dan Dare um, had a bit of a mental life by sort of own admission, um, but yes. got into music very early and was involved with some some massive artists. And he co-wrote um, Head and Heart, the Joe Corey number one. I think it went like platinum or something. I mean, it's, um, still, it's still one of the biggest tunes in the world. It's massive. Aye. It's, uh, aye. That's so funny because when I saw that you had worked with kaleidoscopes as well. Yes. And right, I'd, yeah. I'd I'd seen that in my merry travels and my and my sort of research, and I was like, no way, I'll need to I'll need to chat about that. He's such a great guy, Dan. Um, yeah. We'll, we'll so go yeah, back. So that, I, that I, led me into saying yes. That's what I thought. Excellent. I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> Good. <laughs> because it, it, the reason I for it again for anybody wondering if you've heard the the interview with Heights, they mentioned that they'd written me, and I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, let's talk about <laughs> David Snedden for 20 minutes. And then I thought, fuck it, I'm going to just see if he wants to come on and have a chat. Um, well, there's, there's loads to talk about, so you can you can tell me when we've, we've run out of time. But we'll start up 
it is such a cliche, but we'll start up with where you grew up in Paisley. Now, this is probably this is going to tell me if we're going to have a good one or a bad one. Is it Anne and David and sister Pauline? Is that was that your house growing up? Absolutely spot on. And by the way, I'll tell you something. I, I again, as someone who doesn't do a lot of interviews, there's not a lot of accurate information about me out there. Um, I hope you've got some stuff from a Wikipedia because it's all wrong. <laughs> no, no, I, I don't look. I, pff, Wikipedia. I, I snort at Wikipedia. I look down on that shit. Yes, uh, that's correct. And how just just a normal life can I grow up? Just sort of run of the mill, two point four children. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I suppose, like most folk of my age and generation uh, and where I'm from, I, I mean, nothing but a working class upbringing. Like it was a wee mm. two bedroom flat in Paisley in, in Glenburn. Um, and, you know, my mum and dad worked all their lives so that, and it's funny because I listened to, like, I'll reference Dan one more time because you listen to his upbringing. And I think in the, in the music industry, you can spot another working class person a mile away. I think it's because there's not that many of us, to be mm-hmm. fair. Yeah. Um, certainly on my side of the job. Um, but I th- but <laughs> when I listen to Dan's story, all of a sudden you realise how lucky you are because I, right. you know, I, I grew up, I, you, I can't deny that, you know, we, we didn't have a lot. Um, but my mum and dad, whenever I wanted to try something, so whether or not it was like, driving me to football on a, you know, a pushing it down Saturday or Sunday morning. Or uh, when I got to like age 11 or 12, um, my, one of my teachers sort of pushed me towards Paisley Youth Theatre, which then kind of became my life, to be honest, all the way through high school. Mm-hmm. Um, my mum and dad just said yes to everything that I wanted to try. So opportunities for me, although they weren't financial, uh, they were very open and, and mm. I was sort of allowed to kind of try my hand to anything that, <laughs> that took my fancy. We, what, one thing I find really interesting is, not always, but I would say most times when somebody's really musically inclined or shows that sort of potential or propensity to be interested in something like that, it, normally there is a musical history in the family. Now your dad, um, you said he was a big Beatles fan. Um Paul McCartney and stuff. It was a yeah. It, your dad was a social worker, wasn't he? So it's not as if like he's just pure mad into the music scene. So how do you no. then? How do you? Is it because of the youth theatre, or, or do you think it was already in you and that kind of just pulled it out? So I think I think it was already. I think the musical ability was already in me. Because there's this story that my dad tells where, um, you know, when I was when I was really young, uh, I, I, I swear the way he tells it is it was before I could talk or even walk and he had all the old my dad was a Beatles fanatic mm-hmm. and he had all the old Beatles 45s um which for a younger generation are records <laughs> and he would put out all the sleeves for all these Beatles songs mm-hmm. um and I would apparently he would put the record on and I would apparently crawl over and pick out what song it was before I could read or whatever um and as far as I'm aware that was the earliest sign that I could at least understand mm-hmm. melody. Like I knew what I was listening to. Um, and then when I was about seven or eight, uh, I'd started showing an interest in, in playing music. Now, again, we there's no way we could have had a piano or anything in the house. So my mum and dad bought me this tiny little, it's so funny thinking about it. It's like a little Casio keyboard, no bigger than a laptop, actually. But what you could do is it had these little like uh, lights on it and you could pick up 
with one finger really you could pick up the tune because the light mm -hmm. would flash telling you which note ah, to play. Okay. And I had a little, it was like a little vintage computer cartridge that had four Beatles songs on it. And um, I remember by the end, of, I got it, uh, I think I got it either birthday or Christmas, but I remember by the end of that day, that first day, I was able to pick out the melody without the lights. And from that point onwards, I think I was always able to, to acknowledge music by, by ear, which is now how I play piano. Like I, I would say um, that if I can hear something, I can pretty much play it right away. Um, at least I, I kind of can visualise where Aye. the notes are. Um, and it's probably because of that. But no, my dad, there was no musical ability in my dad and there still isn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, um, it's funny It's funny you saying that about being able to um, play tunes by like by ear, just by hearing it. But like your hero, Reginald Dwight, not the others, is uh, Elton John. Yes. I mean, that was that was actually really where I started learning how to play. Um, and that wasn't until much later. Like, I didn't get access to a piano until high school. Um, <clears throat> and do you know what? See, to be honest, I would say even by the time I left high school, I probably knew about three chords, mm. um, which led me, I, I, it sort of pretty quickly led me into writing. Um, but at that point, I really started paying attention to what Elton was playing. Um, and then by the time, you know, fast forward because I know we don't have a lot of time by the time I started writing I had really picked up how I played piano um, and obviously nowhere near as good as him but I had an, I had a rough idea about what he was doing and you know to this day I still probably I, I still reference him whenever it comes to piano parts or because there's not there's not many I would say better than him when you listen to it. I mean, certainly that sort of classic Goodbye Yellow Brick Road era, mm. Elton John. He was, he was. I suppose him and Billy Joel were doing stuff on the piano that not a lot of other songwriters were doing. Um, so yeah, I still, I still, he's still one of my heroes. Um, obviously my musical tastes have, have grown and expanded since then, but. I think, uh, I think you and I have got very similar music tastes, but in terms of the Elton John sort of worship, we're definitely on the same page there. Well, you've obviously got a far more forensic knowledge and, un and understanding of what he's doing but I'll, I keep saying that I think now that Elton John is the greatest living musician uh, or the, great, the greatest one remaining you look at his back I've got Elton John on probably every day but when you look at his back catalogue and also when Rocket Man came out and then I went and got his his biography and listened to it in audiobook and then that was it it was like my this reignition re of my absolute Obsession with him, the guy is just incredible. He's caught like this constant evolution as well when you look at him through the years. I mean, even you, you okay, I, I definitely, I, I would prefer Elton from 1974 to Elton now if I'm 100%. Oh, no, me too. But, but what I would say is that the thing that I really love and admire and respect is, like you said, that evolution and that only somebody who loves what they do. Do you know what? I know folk hate Coldplay now, but see when you listen to Coldplay, Parachutes and Coldplay now, there has clearly been a very definite decision within that band mm. and Chris Martin's songwriting just to evolve, just so that they can, I suppose, in some way stay relevant. Now, again, I definitely prefer Coldplay in the early days to now, but I've got so much respect for folk who have that ability. Ed Sheeran's doing it now. Folk who who look at themselves and look at what music they did early on and, and definitely worked for them, but think, 
well, I can't just keep making the same record. Otherwise, right. I'm only, you know, what's, what's the point? Um, so I, there's not a lot of folk like Elton who've managed to do it consistently over the years. And let's be honest, there's also not a lot of fucking superstars around these days. Everybody needs to be like the guy next door or the girl next door. Mm. You know, social media means you want to know everything about a person. Personally, I like my Bowie's to be mysterious. You know, right. I want, I, I still, I still love that 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 there was a there was a time where they were almost musicians and 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 I guess actors as well, but definitely rock stars were sort of otherworldly. Um, and mm. I still kind of, I still kind of crave that and look for that. Um, even as a even as a songwriter, I still look for that. But Elton at least has still got a bit of that about him. You know, he's he's a, he's a rock star. Did you see what happened to him yesterday? No. Flying to New York, I'm sure he's flying to New York and his private jet had to go back. It was in the south of Ireland and had to basically turn back in, in emergency land because one of the engines failed. Okay. And um, they tried to land like three times but couldn't because of heavy winds and it was meant to be in like proper touch and go. Imagine that had happened. No, I, uh, yeah, it's the, the world is mad enough as it is. I don't I need it Elton Elton John to die in a plane crash. Well, see, yeah. see, while we're totally <clears throat> raving about Elton John, though, in the interest of balance, did you see when he did the, the uh, first lockdown concert and he sang I'm Still Standing? No, I didn't really engage a lot during right. lockdown, right. to be honest. <laughs> and he was he's like in his garden doing like a sort of stay home concert. And he sang I'm Still Standing, but he was like, I'm Dale Denden. And he wasn't actually singing the words. And I was like, what? I was like, right, this is a fucking wind up. Like somebody's bet him. Like Rod Stewart's wearing that bet you don't sing the lyrics wrong or something like that. And it was terrible. And I was like, you better sort your shit out for when you're touring, mate. And else I'm, I'm not Dale coming. Dandin. It sounds like he's changed his name. <laughs> I'm I'll Dale Danden. I'll, I'll send you it, right? He's, he's just, it's not, anybody that's seen it will know what I'm talking about. And if you've not seen it, go on YouTube it and you, uh, you see <laughs> Right, we'll get back to he's you. Still a le- he's still a legend. He is yeah. a legend. Right, before we talk about Fame Academy and stuff, I'm really, because I want to talk about fame and you're sort of, it's not really for you, or the, the, that spotlight, and there's a few things that pointed at that before you did kind of back away from the spotlight. But how did you become a presenter for STV? <clears throat> so, like most folks, so I, yeah, going back a few steps, I suppose during my youth theatre days in Paisley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was trying everything in terms of performing, so I, I, I loved acting. Um, in fact, until I was about 16 or 17, I wasn't really, I wasn't really singing or anything. I, I, I knew I could sing, but it, it definitely wasn't my main thing. Um, so I was always quite, I suppose, at that age as well, everything you do is to try and impress girls. So, uh, you know, I was constantly doing stuff that I thought would get attention. <laughs> and, um, and and that led me, sort of after, after youth theatre and after high school finished, I, I sort of thought maybe about acting or, or I did like, through my youth theatre, I did a few like early pantomimes and stuff like that, mm. just because I, I was like, what, the, what am I doing with my life? Um, at that time, I was singing in a lot of the working men's clubs around Glasgow um, because you could make really good money on a Sunday night um, just doing stuff like that but I was I suppose by then I had started writing I knew by then I could sing and I thought oh I really wanted to be in a band that was just the 
my main ambition. Um, I didn't really care even back then what the band would be. I just knew I wanted to be in a band. Uh, and I, I kind of, I met this guitarist and for the for the shortest time, for about four weeks, we were styling ourselves on Wham, and it was just <sighs> hilarious, mate. Looking back on it, fortunately, there's not too much evidence of it. I mean, there might be something, but there's not too much. And uh, there was a TV producer who had seen me and my mate. I can't remember what it was. I don't know if we did. We'd done an interview about the band, and I was just giving it all the chat and blah blah blah. I want to be mm. George Michael, and he actually approached my manager at the time and said I'm thinking about doing this TV show um, would David be interested in being one of the presenters and mate I had nothing going on like mm-hmm. I had <laughs> I had done six months at uni and dropped out being like no this isn't for me I really want to do music um, then spent a couple of years just doing nothing doing those clubs so it was like being offered a real job I, I kind of got a staff position, position at STV writing this show so I wrote it, presented it, and it was like a, it was a proper job actually. Um, and it was just because of be of, of being interviewed as part of this band. Mm-hmm. At the same time, by the time I'd presented the show, and it was just it was a daft wee STV thing. It, it was it was fun to do, um, but I I knew that I didn't I, I, I didn't want to be a presenter. Like I, mm-hmm. I knew that 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 was just something I was doing for a job. So when that finished, I didn't immediately go and look for work. I went straight back on the dole um, and and looked for recording studio work, basically. Um, and, uh, I mean, be, to be honest, Paul, like, until um, I was 20, I think I, I auditioned for Fame, Fame Academy when I was 23. Um, it was a, it was a basically long, empty days of walking down Comarnock Road in Shawlands to sign on, then going around the pubs at night, trying to make any money I could busking or singing or um you know really living the dream <laughs> <laughs> um until until i auditioned for fame academy really um well, for, for anybody because there, there, there might be people who don't know or who are not really sure of the concept of fame academy mm-hmm. but so i'll give a wee rundown before we talk about applying for it so it was created by endemol which is the people that make big brother uh, and it was on the BBC and they were calling it the ultimate training academy for musical stardom. But the interesting thing was it was also about a big, a big brother style format. It wasn't just about the performance element. So students not really allowed to leave the house, sort of cut off with the outside world, big emphasis on that sort of reality TV aspect. Um, so there was what, like 12,000 people applied for it. And then... 12 <laughs> then 12 students were selected and the funny thing is and so 12 students selected to live in a 35 million pound mansion in Highgate interesting we think about it it's London's second largest private owned stately home which I thought was mental and you think how much that'll be worth now that house and they converted it into this academy with like studios dance studios uh, gym communal sort of sleeping areas and living areas now out of those 12 students selected you only actually even selected Tell us no, what happened there. I, um, <laughs> I uh, so I yeah, I did. I'd gone through the whole audition process, which included auditioning in Glasgow. And again, it's pure mad. Like I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. There was no X factor. Mm. There'd been, I think, there'd been one. There'd been maybe one series of Idol, which yeah. Will Young had won. There'd been that thing. I can't remember what it was called. The thing that Hearsay were on. Fuck pop stars. Pop stars, pop stars, Aye. and and then Big Brother, and so 
I suppose the, the, the concept of those music shows was still pretty new. And like you said, this one to me, I remember it, it was my old man who sent me the, the advert for it. Um, to be honest, he sent me the advert for it being like, what the fuck are you doing with your life? <laughs> You're playing in pubs, go and do something. And the advert was definitely aimed at, like you said, it was meant to be like it was. It was treated like a uni, so it was like you'll 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 get songwriting coaching, you'll get music lessons, you'll. Um, uh, they were basically looking for songwriters and musicians and stuff. And then the idea was that, but then every weekend there will be a big, you know, pop idol type show. Yeah. <clears throat> so the the part that appealed to me definitely was all the songwriting and coaching. I was like, well, that sounds brilliant, and. Uh, when I auditioned in Glasgow, got through all that round, then got taken to London, um, again, put up in this hotel where, like, there must have still been about five or 600 people at this point. It was brutal because in day one, you're doing all this stuff. Singing wasn't really part of it. They were, I think they were looking at that point at personality and mm-hmm. um, I guess how they thought you were going to be in a reality situation as opposed to a music situation. Half of those folk got cut. On day one, then on day two, you're sitting with another 200, 250, and then it becomes back about music and all that stuff. I got down to the final 15, and at that point, they send you home. And uh, it's like, all right, thanks very much. And uh, I remember (laughs) having gone through all this, back up the road, at this point I was living in Glasgow, back up the road to Glasgow and signing on again. And it took another month probably before... I got the phone call saying, uh, you weren't <laughs> successful. You're not in the academy. But what we would like to do is do like a live sing-off for the final place. And I was like, uh, all right. I mean, again, what else am I going to do? Um, so flew back down to London. At this point, the show... They all the, the the eleven that had been chosen had been rehearsing, and they'd become this thing. They were all mates at this point. Me and the two other uh, losers mm-hmm. were standing at the side, going, "Can we be in your show?" <laughs> <laughs> we the three of us did a sing off, um, and again, it was kind of mad because it's all so manipulated. Like I was told, I was told, right, you are going to sing uptown, Carol, uh, uptown, girl because we think you look a bit like one of Westlife, and at that point, Westlife had just had that as a massive hit. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, uh, all right. Um, so sorry. And then got beat again uh, by the Irish girl, Sinead, who got the final place she finished in the second. academy. She ended up finishing second. And I, again, <laughs> just flew back up to Glasgow. What a fucking dunt to the confidence that must be. Mate, I tell you what, it, it was... And it wasn't because I won't lie. On the night when I saw the show, <laughs> I'm standing outside going, "Yeah, this might be pish." Like I could, like, you know, you're watching <laughs> aye, it, and aye. you couldn't. I couldn't tell. I was like, "Is this any good?" I, just, I don't know. And when I when I went back up and watched it on TV, I definitely felt a wee bit like, "Oh, I don't actually know if that is for me." Mm-hmm. Um, spent and and then spent the whole week getting absolutely hammered just like drowning my sorrows going well there was that was my london experience um i'll i'll, I'll go back in I, I did have a band at that point um and we were i don't think we were destined to go and sign a record deal but we were making money so it was like mm-hmm. well i'll go back in the band and we'll a week later 
the, one of the girls on the show got, the poor girl got laryngitis, lost her voice entirely, was told by the show, uh, you're going to have to leave. The producer phoned me on the sun. This was only a week later, the Sunday morning. I got a phone call Sunday morning, hungover, um, lying with my girlfriend. <laughs> and they go, "She's Naomi's out. We want you in. Can you fly to London tomorrow? And I was like, uh, let me, I'll, I'll need, can you give me five minutes <laughs> to, <laughs> to talk to folk? And, and again, everybody was just like, well, what else are you going to do? And at that point, I definitely thought, well, at the very least, it gets me back to London because I had no other way really of getting down to London. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, get me to London. I might meet somebody, a manager or a publisher or a record. I might meet somebody that when I get, because at this point I'm thinking, I'll get kicked out next week. Right. I mean, the way this has gone for me so far, there's absolutely no way I'm lasting longer than a week. <laughs> but I thought I might meet somebody. And um, and yeah, then that was that. The rest is history. <laughs> how, how nuts is that, though, that you can almost, I know, like in retrospect, when you look back, you can pinpoint certain events or we sliding doors moments or whatever. But that's the universe is like, fuck's sake, like this guy's going into this house no matter what happens. <laughs> um, what I think is really funny. Is you then so you see some early signs you know like in the spotlight and not just in a sort of fame sense but in a general sense now hear me out on this one right so you had said to an audience your housemates right at the start you said I'm a singer songwriter but I've been labelled as a sort of boy band and that's always going to be in the back of people's minds and that annoys me so then shortly after right you were doing a one-on-one with the vocal coach Carrie Grant and mm-hmm. she was quite dismissive, right? So she's like, she said, and this is a quote, what's your flavour? I don't understand you. Now I'm shouting, well, fucking work out and try and understand them. That's your job. Don't be so dismissive. <laughs> fucking bam. Like, I was pure annoyed. And then she says to you, do you play? Do you write? Do you perform? And you say yes. And she's like, which? And you go, all. I like all of them. So then she goes, well, play me something then. Now you start singing Stop Living the Line. At this point, I'm like, fuck off, no way. I was like, there's no way he just had that up his sleeve. He did, right? And her, her and the other uh, coach are like proper visibly stunned. So am I, right? I'm like, I can't believe he just had that sitting there. And then you said this. So this is the whole point of this, right? Is you said, she goes, why did you not show us this? And you said, well, I didn't show it to anybody because I didn't want to come in a week late everybody's bonded and I just present myself as a centre of attention. And again, I'm then going like, mate, you can't have a song like that sitting there and then no just fucking tell people <laughs> you've got that. Like instead of just sort of humming uptown girl, I was like, but it made me think, I was like, do you think that statement in itself was like a prelude to you moving into songwriting? Because you're no wanting to, be, you don't need to be, at the complete centre of attention, everybody look at me and, and more the, the creation of the music was enough. Because again, mate, see if I had that, I would be in the queue as and I'd be like, here, Seneca, what hear a song? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I don't I mean? get me wrong, I've done, I've done that. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think that's a really, do you know what? It's a very astute point because I, <laughs> for somebody who's won a TV show called Fame Academy, mm. at, at no point in my life did I want to be famous at no point? And and I, and I guess when you're these shows, X Factor, you know, whatever's still going today, these shows are full of working class kids who just need a fucking opportunity. Mm-hmm. And that's what I was. And so it was like, what 
I had I had nothing else. I had, there was no way I was coming to London to be a writer just off my own steam. So yeah. it was an opportunity for me. Now I I remember that like it was yesterday, and it's funny that it's funny that Stop Living a Lie it became the thing because I genuinely didn't play that thinking. <laughs> Wait till you hear this. Mate, that was the only song I could play. And that's mm. not a lie. That I mean, I was sitting when she's I knew I was a songwriter, but at that, even at that point, age, I think I was 20, 23 or 24, I couldn't play and sing at the same time. I could play and I could sing, but putting them together, mm-hmm. Stop Living the Lie was the only song. Now, in my head, when she says, What are you going to play? I had another song that I thought was a better song, but I was like, nobody's going to play it for me. So when I started playing Stop Living the Lie, I was like, right, okay. And I caught that thing that you're talking about. So as I'm playing it, I'm like, I could tell that they liked it. And I was like, right, keep going. Don't fuck up. Just get through it and see what happens. After the, you know, when it all got through and after the show had finished, my manager then at the time, who'd watched it on TV, was like, he said, do you know you were sitting playing a number one hit? I was like, no, of course I didn't know that. Like, I, I just was like trying to get my way through this thing because I didn't want to be the centre of attention. Mm. I thought that I could do it just to get myself into the music industry in some way. From that point onwards, to be fair, there was a switch in my mind, I think, where I was like, right, you are going to have to step up if you don't want to go home next week. Because I could at that first week. She, cause, I mean, again... I kind of understand it. None of them picked me for that show. So for mm. them, it was quite embarrassing that week after week, they kept putting me up for eviction every week. And every week, the public were like, oh, he's quite good. <laughs> Let's keep him in. Uh-huh. Um, and it kept happening week after week after week. And I knew that I, that was going to keep happening. I knew that for them, it was like, we kind of let him win this. None of us chose him to be on this show. So I think I went into that fight or flight mode at that point. And I really tried. Like, mm. I, from then onwards, I was like, right, none of you are putting me out of this. Like, I, I was like, even if it means I'm, I'm teaching myself as I go, which I did, by the time I left Theme Academy, which was only 10 weeks, I could play and sing at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, because I was doing it 24 hours a day, I was like, right, come on. So, um, but I still, I still never thought I would win it. And when I won it, I still immediately found the attention uh, I don't even know what the best way is to describe it um, I'm never somebody who's suffered from like I'm, I feel lucky in that I've never suffered from anxiety or panic attacks because I don't think I take myself very seriously but I think if if we talked about mental health back then the way we mm-hmm. do now mm-hmm. I can see in that six months after Fame Academy I should have been speaking to somebody about uh, oh, Jesus. how I was feeling well, um, it's, it's like that was the start of the, the reality TV boom. Like Big Brother had started summer 2000 and that right. was just then the whole focal point. Fame Academy was getting about 9, 10 million viewers for every show. Now that's line of duty numbers. Oh, it's mad. But that's also a time when the, the, there wasn't any social media and I'm just stating the obvious here, but there wasn't any social media, there wasn't a YouTube and everybody read the papers and watched TV. And that was, it's this ultra concentrated level of fame. So, yes. you're getting in, as you say, you're signing on in Kilmarnock Road. And then two months later, you're, you're probably the most, rec- for a period, the most recognizable guy in the UK. And to adjust to that is nuts. Like, when if I, 
I'll be on a show on the BBC, right, that nobody watches. And then the next day, you will get people like, ah, oh, I seen you in that thing last night. <laughs> and it, you're a bit like, sometimes taken aback, like, oh, fuck. Like, because, so that, to, to then think how, how you adjust to that. And people are now giving counselling and are giving assistance and are giving all these things, but you would have been kind of just flung to the wolves a wee bit. It was such a, you've described it so well. It was such a, I, I always call it hyperfame because, I mean, it was only, t- it was 10 weeks actually. So from the moment I left, I left um, up near Battlefield Monument. And from, right. the moment I, from the moment I left Battlefield to the moment I came back, because I came back uh, to Shawlands 10 weeks later, because I think I had stuff to pick up in my flat. And the, the, for me, there were two moments that, that made me go, oh, this, oh, I don't know if I like this. The first one was the, was the strangest and most surreal experience of my life, and I, 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 it'll never be topped for me. I'd won the show. Uh, I don't even think my single, it was like two weeks after the show that my song came out, so I don't even think I'd, I'd had the number one yet, so it was just the show. And I was given a day off because I'd never got to see London, so my mum, my dad, uh, my girlfriend, we all got taken around London and they'd what they'd done was they'd given us our own pod on the London Eye, uh-huh. um, which is even that is mental. Um, fuck's but, sake, is the London Eye that old? Aye, I would have honestly said the London Eye was like 2010 or something. <laughs> no, it's that old. Um, I think it was pretty new then, but it was it's 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 old, <laughs> and so am I. <laughs> and they, they 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 put us in this thing and we got up. We got up to the top and I'm like looking about the place going, look at this is unreal, look at London. And you're looking at, you know, obviously Parliament and you can see Buckingham Palace and it's wild. Mm. And my missus is standing next to me and she's sort of, um, she kind of like goes, oh, look at that. And I looked around and there was a pod on the other side of us, absolutely rammed full of people. And not a single one of them was looking at London. Every one of them was up pressed against the glass looking at me. And I just remember, and obviously you're in a pod, there's no escape, and you're Aye. at the top of the London Eye, there's nothing <laughs> I can do. Um, and I remember the feeling of being trapped, and it, it's funny, because it's a metaphor of just being trapped by fame. Mm-hmm. I, I was just like, oh, wow. It was so, it was such an odd feeling. Then when I got back to Glasgow, uh, there's a wee newsagent um, on the corner of where my flat used to be, Um if anybody knows Glasgow, uh, next to the Langside Cafe. And uh, the lad who was in the newsagent always used to change our uh, empty iron brew bottles because back then you could exchange the empty bottles and get a new one if you had <sighs> enough bottles. And we, we collected like, I mean, tell you what, we we had, you didn't uh, come into our flat and there'd be like a hundred empty <laughs> iron brew bottles because we couldn't afford to buy new ones. <laughs> and you'd, you'd, we'd go down with uh, poly bags full of empties and the guy would give us a, a new bottle of Iron Brew. And uh, that was my life for a couple of years before Fame Academy. I went in uh, when I first came back up to Glasgow. And I think I just, I think I did just go in to buy a bottle of brew. And the lad behind the desk, honestly, mate, I can't even explain how differently he spoke to me, having spoken to me for the last two years. And it was almost like because all of a sudden, he knew I was mega famous and, and knew who I was and all that. And um, he wouldn't let me pay for the, for the Iron Brew. 
And when I'm standing there going, mate, come on, let me, uh, you know, I've got a wee bit of money now. And it was the, even that made me feel uncomfortable. And that just spread, that feeling spread and spread and spread. And then I had to deal with folk thinking that I was dead ungrateful for the opportunity. And and it was nothing to do with that. It was Mm. just that I wasn't comfortable in what I was doing. And if I had kept going down that road, I don't know. I mean, in that six months, I was drinking every night. Um, I was going out all the time. Uh, I got myself into several scrapes, shall we say, that I shouldn't have been in. Mm-hmm. And um, that would have carried on had I not, in the summer of that year, it was only six months after Fame Academy, I, I just thought, I can't, This uh, my personality was changing. And I was like, this is weird and it's mm-hmm. not for me. And I know why. I was. I think I was astute enough back then to know why. Um, so yeah, I... Uh, that was when I, that was when I just sacked it all off. I think you said it, it took you nine months after the release of the single, after being number one, to kind of decide that. By the way, see before we move on, I feel like this was you. See when you're in the London Eye, and everybody's staring at you. A minute, see if you can see it. <laughs> Because <laughs> you're that way. If anybody wants to know, I'm showing the awkward puppet meme. Just Google awkward puppet meme, and that's David. And uh, 100%. And, and the looks a bit like me, you know. <laughs> just the wee side either. Um, God, I've got. I'm I'm conscious of time, right? But I've got I've got quite a few questions. First of all, let's talk about the chart career. Now you spent two weeks at number one. We stopped living a lie. It was, uh, the first one of the year uh, in 2003. Now, in August of that year, Elton John was number one with Ready for Love, which I don't know if anybody remembers, but that was as a result of it being used in the Sky Sports ad for that's English right. football coming back, and that's why it kind of went back to number one. Um, how how did was there a sense of pure and utter satisfaction that both you and Elton John were number one in the same year after? <laughs> not, to be fair, mate, I've never even considered it. <laughs> I mean, but see, 2000 years... 2003 was a good year for music, by the way. You had Leave Right Now by Will Young, uh, Gareth Gates with Spirit in the Sky. Mm, not really having that, but uh, special mentions to Tattoo, all the things she said, Black Eyed Peas, Where Is The Love, Beyonce Crazy In Love. So there's some, it was a good year for music. I think, didn't that year, I don't know if I'm right, if it's exactly, it was around then. I think Coldplay might have released Rush of Blood To The Head, which is one of my favourite albums of really? all time, around then. And... I believe... Uh, R. Kelly Ignition was number one that year, but we can't talk about him. We can't talk about him anymore. He's fucked up. Uh, he's, uh, he's fucked up. <laughs> but uh, no, it was, it, was, uh, it was a good time for music. Um, I think that I, I, I got to do... I mean, Elton... Oh, I, I mean, I don't know if you know this, but I got to support him um, on tour. And oh. that was a... I mean, talk about a moment. It's almost like doing all the Fame Academy stuff and having my number one and all that stuff kind of paled into significance when I got mm. to meet Elton John. It was it was like one of those moments where where I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. And he, you know, on stage dedicated a song to me and um, actually no allowed me allowed me to use his band, who are again my heroes, legends, to make my record. No so way. that's amazing. There was just moments like that that were wild, um, but yeah, I, I guess it. It's funny. I don't really think about all this stuff until I'm, and, and I don't do a lot of interviews, so it doesn't come up a lot. But mm-hmm. I guess after the after Fame Academy, I did get to do a lot of pretty cool shit. I've I've got a few more as well. Um, 
I mean, half the people listening will be like, pricks. And the other half will go, what? The other half will go, wow, that's really cool. But you became pals with the DeBoers, the, the DeBoer <laughs> brothers, who at the time they've been playing for Rangers. Did you sing yeah. at their birthday party? Uh, yeah, actually, well, at that point, Ronald was the only one in Glasgow. Oh, was it? I think Frank might have still been, was he at Barca at that point? I can't um, remember. But um, yeah, of course, you know, be, you're right. Half the city at this point will be like legend. Half the city will be like hate him. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah. Uh, I, you know, and I am from that half of the city. So for me, it was, like, that. it was it was uh, it was just meeting again. It was meeting another hero. But Aye. I mean, back then, I, I got I got to meet Elton, I got to meet Super Ali, and I got to go and sing uh, Ronald DeBoer's birthday party, where I where I then had dinner with like Mikel Arteta. Uh, shot out of our lads hating Arthur Newman. So oh, I, can, pretty... I can totally acknowledge how cool that is, especially if you're a Rangers fan. Like, it's... yeah, of course it is. But but I also got because also the other thing about me is I'm also just I'm a mad football fan. Like mm-hmm. um, I I like football more than I like music. Uh-huh. So that whole year I also got to go and perform at the Man United um, end of year awards. Oh, that's um, amazing! And at that time. It was like Rud van Nistelrooy, Paul Scholes, Ryan Giggs. I mean, it was wild. Sir Alex. Aye, um, they signed Ronaldo in 2003. Bex had left was, that summer. Yeah, Bex had gone. Um, but it was, all that sort of stuff was the cool, was the fun side of it, the cool side of it. Aye. Um, and I could deal with that. <laughs> the other stuff I couldn't deal with. Which, like other stuff you can't deal with in downsides is like how the tabloid press twist things. Here's a couple of things you get pulled up for, right? Which were, fucking out of order even now looking at it so you had basically pop stars the rivals had been on and uh, one true voice and girls allowed had won it and you said in a throwaway comment to a journalist oh I prefer the girls allowed song and that became you slaughtering one true voice and then you're on CD UK with Kat Daly in 2003, late 2003, and then she kind of mentions it, and you're like, hold on a fucking minute, that isn't like what I said, and you'd also been accused of slagging, and by the way, the Girls Allowed tune was better, everybody knows that. It was a banger, and, it still and is. So one, it's true, and two, you're entitled to your opinion, but there was also like people saying that you'd slagged Gareth Gates and Mel Young, and you're like, hold on a minute, and all of a sudden you're having to defend yourself for something that you never actually said. Yeah, I, I think, again, that was another one of those things where I caught on to it pretty quickly, how they work. There was a lot of... It, it, they're probably still there. I don't have to deal with it anymore, so I don't know. But the, the truth of the matter is there's a lot of scumbags um, that work in entertainment press. Um, and that was all they wanted back then. It's, do you know what? To be fair, it's probably not like that anymore. Back then, all they wanted were little sound bites that they could twist into mm. you fighting with everybody else. And it's not as and if you can then tweet that wasn't true because Twitter exactly. didn't exist. Exactly. And then I would get folk coming up to me and saying, well, I don't like what you said about that. But I was like, do you know what? I didn't, I didn't I say that. I never said that, and, for fuck's sake. And, I, and again, I, I'm not... I'm also not the type of person who... I'm not scared to voice an opinion. So mm. if somebody asked me, what do you think of this song? I wouldn't say it in a bad way. I'd be like, it's not really for me, but I do. And that's the type of thing that they loved. Like, Aye. and there, there, was, there was some darker stuff that they did. There was the, the one that always sticks in my mind was that I was playing a gig um, the night Celtic were in the UEFA Cup final. And my tour manager in my radio plug at the time, a, a lad called Brendan Moon, mad I know, Celtic I've fan. interviewed you know Brendan. Brendan. Well, I interviewed him. And again, you came up because we talk about the Paolo thing and them. Um, yeah. And yeah. Gavin Pearson was hosting. The, the interview couldn't go out because the audio was was gubbed. So he was your oh. plugger. That's so funny. 
he was aye, and he big Celtic fan, and I think <laughs> we were playing somewhere like um, might have been Blackpool, but we went on too late. And Brendan obviously wanted to watch the game, and I was like, let's go, let's find a pub, let's go and watch it. And of course, I'm not going to sit there and be like making noise and like shouting. And apart from anything else, I'm not a Celtic fan, so I'm just sitting there like watching the game. Um, mm. I went on stage afterwards, did my gig, didn't think anything else of it. The next day, in the morning, now, I, and I still to this day don't know where it came from. They, the, I think there was a bit of digging that they discovered they think the guy behind the bar had said something to a journalist. But what they claimed was that I had been sitting actively supporting Porto and cheering when Porto won that, right? Which was nonsense. Then I had gone on stage and dedicated my performance to Porto. Now this, I think it was in the Daily Record. And I'm not, as much as I'm a Rangers fan, I'm not one of those folk who's going to sit and be vitriolic about Celtic. Because actually, I don't. Most of the time, I just don't really care Aye. unless Rangers are involved. But see, but the damage that did the next day—not mm. just to me, but to my family, actually—and I actually had had to have somebody contact the record and say, "You you live up here. You know what Aye. that can mean." Being as as vocal about that, but, but and I mean, it was such nonsense. See um, on that, right? First of all, that is a dangerous thing. You shouldn't be doing that, especially if it isn't true. And even if it is, right? So, honest to God, I'm well, saying this is I'm saying this is the biggest Celtic fan on the planet. <laughs> if you tell me a Rangers fan's watching that game and you tell then they'll be like, what do you think happened? I'll say, well, they were probably happy and they were probably cheering. Because that's what that's what football is. That's you're a, if you're a Celtic fan, you're happy when Rangers get beat. And if you're a Rangers fan, you're going to be you're, you're going to be more happy than sad when the other one loses. I don't understand what the problem with that is. So look, then, I, if somebody took exception to that, I'd be like, "Sorry, are you fucking new to this, mate? Like, look, know, we don't and, like and each other as, as fans." And that's the thing. I I know that the fact. I mean, it's funny you see. I, I know on definitely on match days, I know the fans don't like each other, and I know on the forums there's a lot of poison. But you know, I I've got hundreds of mates that are. I know fans, we all have, and vice versa. And it's it's not it, it, that there's there's a certain type of um, rivalry that if you don't have it then what's the point in football what's the point in it that, like, anybody that's surprised or upset by rivals celebrating when the other one loses is I, again I'd say I'd like, I think you're new to this I don't, or maybe I don't think right. this is for you because see when you break it down it's like man is happy that, and it, it, maybe it, it probably didn't but, even happen but that's and that's the thing this is the, this is the point that annoyed me the most like Apart from anything else, I'm sitting there with Brendan, um, who's Aye. who's devastated, right? Mm. And I'm also not the type of person that is sit there going ha 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 to my pal when he's like absolutely <laughs> mortified and gutted. But I, apart from it, and again, even then, I was aware of attention on me and stuff like that. So I just would never have done it Aye. to be honest. Pretty but order. it was just it was the it was the lack of acknowledgement that it's not just me you're affecting at that point. Like, my mum and dad got abused the morning after that for something that hadn't happened. Mm. And I was just like, come on, that, it's bang out of order. But all of that just led towards me being like, do you know what? Fuck this. I don't need Aye. any of this. Um, and that, that, and I mean, it, it obviously wasn't just that, but that was one of about a hundred things that had happened when I was mega famous Aye. that um, made me go, nah, I don't, I don't need any of this. No, I can totally understand that. 
Wait, it's quite. Was it quite a few years later then that you've was Lana Del Rey the first person that you met in two thousand and ten that you kind of ended up writing with, or had there been stuff before that? I'd been doing. I suppose my main problem was that when I when I finished, when I said I don't want to make any more music, I don't want to make another record. My publisher at the time did say, "Well, you can clearly write a tune. Do you want to write for others?" And mm. at that point, I still didn't even really know that that was a full time job. I hadn't really worked with any other writers. I try to do most of my stuff myself um and so I didn't I wasn't aware that there was this like that it was a massive part of the music industry and um but I did also then have to deal with for a good I mean yeah I for a good five years I had to deal with folk being like what why do I want why would I want to work with a guy that won fame academy um and I can't I get it to an extent I get why certain artists or folk would think nah I don't I, that's not for me so I started, me and my, my pal, um, who was my writing partner at the time, formed a team. And what we did was just start looking for younger artists, which if, if there's anybody out there wondering how to get into this properly, that's by far my biggest piece of advice. Go out and find artists, because there's, mm-hmm. there's millions of them. Um, and there's people out there who, you know, I worked with hundreds before. The two I had back-to-back um, were Hertz and Lana. And it was funny because, you know, at back at back then, Hertz actually exploded bigger and quicker than Lana mm. did. Yeah. Um, and off the back of that, we finally managed to sort of like sign a publishing deal as songwriters. But then when Lana exploded, it was global and mm-hmm. it was quick. Um, and at that point, it was funny. It almost happened overnight. I hadn't changed as a writer. And it's amazing how quickly all it takes is one tune on one record and all of a sudden everybody wants to work with you um from nothing from nobody wanting to work with you um so yeah that that I, I worked with hundreds of folk before that but that was definitely Lana was my was my definitely my first big moment as a writer mm-hmm. I've um with with the hearts so I'm trying to think how best to even explain this loads of people have probably said this to you over the years right but see like it must have been like two years ago maybe I was in the car and just no thinking about anything and then nothing's in my head and then I just went I wonder what David Snedden's up to <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> people probably do it all the time right because genuinely Grado did it a few weeks ago <laughs> I, contacted me on Insta <laughs> oh Grado man what a, what a guy we um because Stop Living the Lie is genuinely just a tune that I've always it's always been in my Apple music right I've always loved <laughs> it and it just, just popped in my head and I'm like I wonder what he's up to so I'm a, I'm a Hearts mega fan but I also love oh wow I'm like a real mega fan, like obsessed with him. And my old flatmate went to school with, with not Theo. Oh, fuck's sake. I can't Adam. be that Adam, Adam. I can't be that obsessed Adam. with him. I don't yeah. know his name. Yeah. Um, but so I've went and had a look. So you were involved in writing uh, Desire, Illuminated, Blood, Tears, and Gold, Silver Line, and Beautiful Ones. Like and I might have missed a couple out there. Um I've done quite a, I have done quite a lot. Like I, I worked on four, I think, of their albums. Wow. Um well Theo, you know. Over the years, those those lads just became mates. Obviously, like Aye. when you, the, it's the weird thing about my job. Like when you're locked in the, in a very largely, it's, these are small rooms. When you're locked in small rooms with folk, you bond very quickly. Mm. Um, because to write a really good song, you sort of, you just have to open up. You have Aye. to sort of get to know each other. And and it's funny you you think of somebody as a really really good mate and realise 
pro in real terms, you've probably only ever spent five days with them mm-hmm. spread out over like two aye. years. Aye, but those five point. days, um, but we 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 Adam and Theo, obviously, I kept going back because I just I really hit it off with those two. Theo is now working in my job. He's now working as a writer, oh, and, and Theo and I actually work on loads of stuff together now. Um, loads of projects together and I think it's just because that the way we work together for Hearts really applies to other artists it's it's kind of a co-writing is definitely like a friend it's a friendship mm. that you are able to sort of transfer <laughs> into music that's I and I'm aware how wanky that sounds but it's the only way I can think of to put it makes it. sense uh, but, I, but yeah I, I, Hearts were were, were really Probably my first experience of what it is to work as a proper songwriter in, in a band environment, mm-hmm. um, even before Lana. They are just incredible. After my pal Kenny, uh, Carmichael, always gets a mention on this because we've just done so many things together. But me and Kenny saw them, and the it was the car, it was back then, it was the Carling Academy uh, in Glasgow in 2011. And then we saw them in the garage. In 2013, and I was like, this can't be right. These are too big for you. But I was like, nobody's seen it. And like, we'll just go and see them. This is class. Like, and then hope I was I kind of thought, these are going to turn up at a garage and blah, like, oh, for fuck's sake. We thought this was a lot bigger. But kind of it suited does. Are they have you been working on a new album with them? Actually, we did some stuff at the very, I think just before the last, was it before the first lockdown? They made they put a record out that they made during lockdown. Because again, like most folk, they mm-hmm. were like, "Well, what what are we going to? We're not just going to stop." So yeah. the pair of them did a record mostly just by themselves. Um, they are. It's funny. Most folk here now don't really have an idea of how huge they are in other parts of the world. Mm. So they, you know, it's like you said, they might be playing the garage in Glasgow, but they'll be headlining a festival in Germany alongside mm-hmm. Coldplay. Like they are. They're massive. So I think for them, there's a bit of a hiatus because they can't tour. Um, so it's like you make it and then you make a record so that you can then tour it. Um, so I'd imagine they, I doubt they'll do anything this year. They, they'll probably get back together and, and do something again next year. But, oh, um, I love them, man. I need them to come back. Yeah. Um, in terms of just other artists, I'll go through some. There's loads, but I've got Rag and Bone Man, The Cortinas. Nathan Sykes of The Wanted. Have you worked in The Wanted's news track? What a new track for their new stuff. I have, yeah. I was um, a massive Wanted fan back in the day. But Nathan's a Nathan's a really good mate of mine. Um, and I've I've worked. He's making a new solo record. Um, so I've been working tons with him. And then you know, there's a, a, a for those who don't know, there's a really horrible situation with one of the lads in the band. Yeah, Tom um, Parker. With Tom, and he's he's not very well. And um, they decided to get back together for Stand Up to Cancer because Tom wanted to put on a show mm-hmm. and at that point they were like well if we're getting back together let's maybe look at doing some music and actually it's ended up they've, they've done a few songs they've done a greatest hits and they're doing a, an arena tour um, I'll be it's there funny for them. Center. mate I'm, I'm, I'm going like glad you came <laughs> what a tune <laughs> absolutely um, amazing but but you know it, it's for them it's, it's, it's a really great thing for them to be able to go back together you know, mainly they did it for Tom. Now they're back together. It's like putting on old shoes. You know, they go straight back into that. And then, you know, Nathan's making a solo record. So it's like, mm-hmm. I don't think any of them feel any real 
pressure about it. Um, but yeah, I, 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 Nathan's maybe a bit more. I think Nathan's more talented than a lot of folk realise he is. Um, I, I would agree with you. He can. I think he is. He's not just <laughs> boy band fodder. I think he's a, a, a genuine musician. His new music is is going to surprise a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's a fantastic songwriter, and he's definitely yeah. I love you know he was fifteen I think when the wanted kicked off. He's still only twenty eight, um, and he's matured and grown up, and his music has now matured a lot. So he'll be one to watch again. I don't know if it'll be this year or next year, but he'll be one to keep an eye on. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm very fortunate. Some of the folk I've worked with. Um, Wait. We do have to, we have to give it, well, there's Nicole Shirt singer, Ollie Murs, Shane Feel in a Westlife, but we have to give Lewis Capaldi a mention. Obviously, I, I saw <laughs> a, a, name, a name in everybody's <laughs> lips. Um, and I, I want to talk about at the time where you were, we'll talk about this in a uh, secondly, but where you were when his album went to number one, you were involved in helping write. But how did that come about? Was it again just a similar process of people putting these together? Or? We met. Actually, we had a mutual friend and I had literally no clue what Lewis was. I didn't, I, I knew he could sing, but but not. But we actually met over a pint. We didn't meet in the studio. We sat and had a couple of pints together, had that immediate thing. If you're from, and this was in London, if you're from Scotland, especially, you know, where we are, the West, and Aye. then you meet somebody from roughly where you are in another place, it's like we're the only country in the world where you can become more Scottish if you leave Scotland. <laughs> um, and and I think me and Lewis did that thing where, and again, it's funny. It's like if you're if you're a if you're a normal um, what was the best way to put this uh, rational thinking human being, you can talk about Rangers and Celtic and get along. <laughs> and me and Lewis had immediately we realised you know he's from the green half, I'm from the blue half, and we spent we had such a laugh over a few pints. And at the end of it, he was just like, shall we try writing? And I loved him. So I was like, aye, let's let's get in. And it's one of those moments, mate, like you're writing a song and he was clearly good. Like mm-hmm. you're writing together. He's a lovely, lovely human being. It, you know, with Lewis, it is just what you see is what you get. Um, but it was the moment where we'd written a tune and he went up to the microphone to start singing it. Because he'd been right, he'd been singing sort of like quietly under his breath while we were coming up with the melody and the lyrics and stuff. And that was the first time he opened up. And I remember me and the producer, as soon as he started singing, me and the producer sort of looked at each other and went, What the fuck is this? His voice was so undeniably world class. That was the only way I could put it. I was like, this lad is the, is the absolute real deal. Hi. Especially when he's so it's like he sings like that. And then he'll stop and he'll go, was, was that all right? How, how, how was that? <laughs> he, is such, he is such a really good singer, man. Like, your speaking voice and singing voice don't match up. They yeah. don't sound anything like each other. I it's think that's so part strange. of Lewis's, I think that's part of his, his appeal and his charm. Mm-hmm. His, even, his, even his character and his personality don't necessarily match with the sad songs that he's singing. Mm-hmm. But if you go and see Lewis live, it, you're like, well, of course it works. You know, he'll sing those songs that make make you want to cry. Then as soon as he stops singing, he's like a stand-up comedian. And it's it's just absolutely, for whatever reason, it, it works. And it's from the moment I from the moment I started working with him, I knew that he could, if he wanted to, he could take over the world. 
I don't even think he maybe realised how quickly and how mm. how large that would that would go. But um, it couldn't ha- honestly, and and I say this hand on heart, it couldn't actually happen to a nicer lad. Mm. He's he's just he's he's just one of those guys that you you kind of root for. <laughs> aye, that seems to be the general verdict. I hope he's enjoying it. I'm sure he is. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> at, the t- I, at the at the, uh, at the time that that album was just about to go to number one, I think it was a couple of days before. You were in Tel Aviv in Israel. I don't know if you remember <laughs> That's this. Right. Um, That's right. You had written. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. You'd written the 2019 Greek Eurovision Song Contest contest entry. Better love. Now I think this is mental. Catherine Duska, who was the artist, did the fucking same as me. She looked at her favourite songs to see who wrote them, saw it was you, got in touch and says, do you want to write a tune with me? And you've said, aye, is that basically what happened? That's exactly it. Because I'm I'm one of those folk as well. Like, I, I absolutely love Eurovision. Now, most of the time, I love Eurovision because I'll sit, get hammered. Half of it is terrible. And I, to be fair, the, the stuff that's really mad is always my favourite. I mm. love the stuff that's just absolutely wild. But then there's always two or three tunes that are absolutely incredible and you're like you know who, who did this so Eurovision for me was one of those bucket list things mm-hmm. I was like if I'm ever asked to do it I'll look at the artist I'll look at why and I'll maybe have a go when Kat sent me that that was exactly it she looked at I think a few of the tunes that I'd written that, that were her favourite songs and it just so happened that I was <laughs> on the writing credits so she she reached out I then immediately checked her out and thought that she was um, I was like She's an indie pop artist. I was Aye. like, she doesn't seem like the type of person you'd expect to do Eurovision. Turns out she wasn't the type of person you expect to do Eurovision, which is why I loved it. Uh-huh. Actually, her and I um, formed, a, again, a really tight friendship. We st- I still work with her to this day. I've re- I think, in fact, since then, I think I've written or co-written with her every song she's released <laughs> since then. Um, but for me, it was just about doing Eurovision. Like, I, I just wanted... To go and experience it once. I don't think I don't think I'll ever do it again. It was definitely just mm. one of those things. It's like, well, if I can do it, why wouldn't I do it? Um, and I got a free trip to Tel Aviv. Me and my wife had a whole week there. It was just amazing. That's pretty cool. And you've got a powerful life in Greece as well. If you ever need somebody exactly. to stay when you go there, um, I, I'm conscious of time, so I'll not keep you for too long. But a couple of things. I think we should touch on the Paul and the Tini thing. Because that st- that story has evolved through Urban Legend, but it's Brendan Moon told me the story. So it was a Clyde One event at Paisley Town Hall. It's hosted by Gavin Pearson. Your plane's delayed. Gavin's like, oh, fuck, we need to get somebody to fill this gap a wee bit. He said, does anybody want to sing? Paolo sings Yellow by Coldplay. And they're, you're almost then inadvertently responsible for a large start for one of Scotland's biggest ever stars. Is that correct? I mean, I think, give or take a few wee things, I, I, from what I'm aware, he, they said, does anybody sing? He was apparently standing there in his school uniform and he put his hand up. And um, I remember afterwards, because Brendan, I think Brendan took him on, on the spot. He was that good. Brendan's re- uh, recollection of it was that he said to him, would you like to come down to this studio? I uh, would like to work on Paul. I was like, actually, mate, I've already got my CD, but here, like, you can have one if you want. I'll send you. And then I think there was short, like, a very quick period where he's like, I come in and Brendan ends up managing him for 11 yeah. years and three albums, which I was like, fucking yeah. hell. Like, that's insane. But he, 
I, the way I, the thing I definitely remember, because I met, obviously, it was just a, you know, a schoolboy. He's a schoolboy, school and I met him after the gig. But the thing I remember about Brendan so clearly, I remember him saying, this lad came on stage. His voice is, is unbelievable, next level. Um, but Brendan said, uh, he went, honestly, he said, he started singing. It's funny, I thought it was Angels by Robbie Williams, but you might be right. Maybe maybe it was Yellow by Coldplay. Um, but whatever it was, he started singing. Apparently, he didn't open his eyes. So he stood there with his eyes closed the whole song. Brendan was like, not only could you hear a pin drop, like nobody made a sound. He went, all the girls who were there meant to be there to see you. He went, they then immediately were Paolo Nettini fans. <laughs> anyway, to, be, to be fair, he says, I think they'd have left after Paolo finished. <laughs> yeah, because he was that good. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's kind of urban legend to an extent, but, it, it, uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm, I'm definitely not responsible because Paolo is still one of my favourite Scottish artists. I think I can't wait for his new record. Me neither. Um, I, I genuinely believe that he has... I was even now that but no disrespect to you, and as a performer, I think he's the greatest. Oh, no, I, I'm joking, I'm joking. <laughs> I was tongue in cheek. Um, but no, I think I think he's the I think he's the greatest um Scottish musician. And the fact that he's got another hopefully 30, 40 years to go kind of blow well, Ben's mind a wee bit. That's the thing about Paolo, like you never know. And there are some that again, it's the other bizarre thing about our wee country. There are some unbelievable musicians, singers, mm. songwriters that, that continuously come out. There's a few at the moment. Um, there's a couple I mentioned, I actually give a mention to. Uh, a, a, a girl called Tamzine, who is, uh, again, just a brilliant piano playing singer-songwriter. Sure, I'm interviewing um, her soon. I'm telling you, mate, she's the real deal. And then keep an eye out, right, for this lad. He's only, at the moment, he's only 15. His name is Kerr. And he's managed by Capaldi's manager. Right, okay. And he is, and I don't say this lightly, he is without doubt the most naturally gifted young musician I've ever met. Wow. He is unbelievable. It's like the way he plays piano better than me. He can write songs, you know, on a level that I can. And I'm in my 40s. He's 15. Um, and he is a, his voice is just, he's, he's genuinely... And in Scotland, we take, we seem to just keep producing. You know, Lewis is taking over the world. It's, it's mental. But Paolo, in my opinion, uh, I agree with you in terms of his artistry. There's nobody I can think of that keeps coming out with records that not only did they sort of evolve and change, but they're as they, each record so far he's released is as good as the one before. I know, um, and they're also I, different. No, you look at these streets, then you look at um, Sunny Side Up and Caustic Love. You like they could be for three different artists, I, and the sense of the style of them is so different. Yet all of them fucking timeless. Oh, he's, he's just unbelievable. He is. He's the real the real deal. I'm glad I had a tiny part. <laughs> Although, do you know what? If he hadn't stepped on stage that day he would still be Paolo Nutini in that, some way because he's yes, too good. I, I totally no. agree. I totally agree. It's, it's a nice wee story, but you're like, yeah, aye, they get, the guy's that incredible. He's too good. I love him, So, uh, aye, no, but the, the Scottish talent just, just keeps coming. It's it's brilliant. We, um, kind of looking sort of more at your life, living in London just now, did you get married in 2013? Is it two did, kids you've right, got? Yeah. Two kids. My wee girl actually is only one. She was born... We uh, we found the day Boris announced that very very first lockdown when the oh, world wow. was going mad. Uh, around then we we discovered that my wife was pregnant. She's so 
We ones not even was, get a clue what madness she was born into. Uh, it was it was it made that that first experience. And to be fair, it did give us a distraction. But um, she, uh, yeah, my, my wee boy is five. Um, well, I've been down here since I won Fame Academy. Oh, have um, you the whole time? But the whole time. But um, it's funny. This is the first time the pandemic changed a lot of how we work, how we write. It's the yeah. same for everyone. Like you said earlier, like being on this, yeah, being on Zoom as we are at the moment it's just become a part of everybody's life mm. and there is a way where if I potentially want to move back up the road which I think is on the cards um it doesn't affect my job as much as it, as it used to mm-hmm. um ah, you could so be just up here I, I think 2023 I'm definitely I miss I miss home I miss a lot and and I, I'm from Paisley I was I was born and brought up in Paisley but I lived in Glasgow before I came to London mm-hmm. and I haven't, I've been, I'm, I'm incredibly fortunate. I've travelled all over the world. There's no city for me that does what Glasgow does. I, I still, it's, it, even though I'm not from there, I'm from Paisley, but Glasgow to me has always felt like home for some reason. And I think it's just because I love it so much. Um, so I, I love the idea next year of coming back up to Glasgow. Smashing. And plus, you need to make sure your kids have got Scottish accents as well. Come as xenophobic all you want, but you can't have, no, have different accents for your kids is mad, isn't it? My, don't get me wrong, my, my five-year-old has definitely got a wee, he sounds like a wee Cockney rebel, um, <laughs> but, it, but I've got him, you know, he knows, he stoats about, when we play football on a Saturday morning and he stoats about in the Scotland strip, he knows the score. <laughs> Singing the Blue Sea of Ibrox in a few Scottish he knows, accent. He knows the score, he knows who Alfredo Morelos is. <laughs> he, he, but he's, um, it is funny that, I know that, um, I, that, you know, my wife is English, stuff like that doesn't bother me, but, Definitely sometimes when I hear him go, Daddy, I'm like, oh, oh fuck. <laughs> it's that. <laughs> exactly. Um, I thought we would I thought we would end on a very random note, because I thought this was really interesting. Have you heard about the North Korean David Snedden? The answer's no, because you would have said yes. <laughs> the North Korean David Snedden. Hear me out. So in 2004, when you're probably at the height of your fame, there was a Mormon missionary from Utah called David Snedden, right? And he was in China, and he was fully fluent in Korean, and he was somehow kidnapped in 2004 by North Korean security agents while in China. And he ever since has been held in North Korea where he's got a wife and two kids, and he's Kim Jong-un's head translator. How fucking mental is it? Tell you what, there'd been a few book folk back then that would have wished I had been kidnapped by North you. Korea. <laughs> I wasn't bothered to stop living the lines out by that time, so I'm like, do it. <laughs> David, he's worked with him. I've got that. Tune. By the way, I'm responsible for 80% of your royalties for that over the last <laughs> since streaming was invented. It's you and my, you and my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Not at the same time, I hasten to add in case <laughs> Separately. We're not in the same room. <laughs> David, this, this, go and look up that North Korean one. It's fucking nuts, by the way. Pure mental story. It's all over like is he okay? Like, I think so. I think so. I, I think he's quite happy to stay there. Do you I think by, me up about that as well, though. See, because I have, like, I made a really, really conscious decision back then just to disappear. I was like, mm. I wanted my anonymity back. I didn't want to be famous. And I have pretty much become a recluse. Like, I, I only, last year is the first time, or the year before, is the first time I ever got social media. Um, so all I, I've got an Instagram account that I very 
really engage with. But for the longest time, I suppose there'd been a folk, like you said, who go, what ever happened to David Snedden? And that's the guy that they'd have found out about. So Aye, la- that poor lad. Snake. He really must poor- have hated Fame Academy. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> anyway, uh, it's definitely not me. <laughs> no, it's not you. Dave, I can confirm he's safe and well. <laughs> no, mate, this, is, this has been absolutely magic. I really appreciate you giving me so much your time. Oh, fuck, my battery's about to die. I'm going to run and get my charger while I'm signing off. But no, mate, thank you. It's, um, it's, been, it's been a great laugh. It's been very it's- enjoyable. It's been very enjoyable. I, I, like I said, I don't do a lot of these, so uh, it's you've you've made it nice and easy for me. Thank you very much. Magic, and uh, I now have to get you in the diary for a beer, so I can just ask you. Well, next, other. next time I'm up, why don't we go to an old firm game? Well, <laughs> like get a half half and half scarf and see who gets bottled first. Half and half old firm scarf. You imagine? I mean, I'd bottle myself. <laughs> <laughs> All right, mate. Well, I'll, let, I'll let you crack on, but I give me a shout when you're up, or else, likewise, I'll do the same. I'm down in London in a few weeks, so. No, no worries, pal. It'd be a, be a pleasure. Legend, mate. All right, I'll speak to you soon. Thank you so much. Cheers, mate. Bye bye. See you later on, mate. Bye. Leathered was written, recorded and produced by Sean McDonald in association with The Big Light. Music and post-production by Brian McAlpine and for more information, go to thebiglight.com. If you like this podcast, please check out all our other series including Talk Media, You Could Start a Fight in an Empty House, Talking Derry Girls, Brave Your Day, The Tartan Noir Show, Double Scotch, Great Scott, Trust Me I'm a Leader, Unearthed, A Sonic Hug and Old School, all on The Big Light. Scotland's Podcast Network. From the Big Light Studio.